Welcome to episode 1441 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, and I have a great guest co-host with me today. Probably too great, because people will be disappointed that he is not the permanent co-host. He is an interview (laughs) aficionado. Hold hold on, Ben. Now people are going to be disappointed in how not great I am. (laughs) Sorry. That was a big build-up, and I didn't even finish building you up, so I will continue. He is a fashion plate, a podcast impresario, a facial hair haver. He is Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun, the host of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, and Jordan Jesse Go, the bailiff of Judge John Hodgman. I could keep going, but we do have guests to get to. Jesse, welcome to Effectively Wild. You left out my high school theater credit. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> you know, you have frequented our Facebook group for a while, and every time you post in there, someone who listens to you elsewhere says, wait, is this that Jesse Thorne? <laughs> <laughs> and then someone else posts a gif of Mr. Peanut Butter saying, what is this, a crossover? episode. So yes, that is what we're doing this time. It actually is a crossover episode. It's very exciting to me. I sometimes joke with my wife that I'm I'm extremely famous, but only in line outside the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in Los Angeles. <laughs> and uh, the Effectively Wild Facebook group is a second place where I am famous. <laughs> well, I only have the one place where I'm famous, so that's twice as many as me. We're, we're doing a team preview podcast today. So in a little while, we'll be talking to Will Leach about the Cardinals and also also Julie Parker about the Giants, which is convenient because you are a lifelong Giants fan. But before we get to that, there's some slightly bigger news in baseball. So you either won or lost the lottery here because this Bryce Harper offseason <laughs> saga has been going on for four months and fate decreed that the deal would be done on your day to appear on this podcast. Just when we thought it was safe to finish this episode, we have reconvened to banter about Bryce Harper signing with the Philadelphia Phillies at long last for 13 years and $330 million with no opt-outs and no swell ops. Jeff will be relieved (laughs) wherever he is. And just a no-trade clause and money and lots of years, and that's that. So what's your initial reaction? Well, first of all, I won, and also the listeners won, because they're looking for... <laughs> they, they. If you're asking them, who do, the, who do you want to analyze the Bryce Harper signing, they're going to tell you, I want that fake podcast bailiff. <laughs> right. <laughs> the beard one. <laughs> um, it does seem like a long road to get to this, doesn't it, Ben? <laughs> It sure does. <laughs> this is kind of like maybe a, a little soft, but an extraordinarily long length of contract, presumably to game the salary cap. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also in its own way kind of unremarkable. I mean, I, I was just looking, you know, Saris wrote a piece on The Athletic that said these adjusted for inflation are like the seventh and tenth biggest contracts ever, right. which... When you consider how great these players are and how young they are and how rich baseball teams are now, it doesn't seem that impressive. 
Yeah, for some reason when we talk about contracts, everyone just agrees to pretend that inflation doesn't exist and just whatever the dollar amount, if it's the biggest dollar amount, then it's the biggest contract ever. So technically, this is $5 million more than Giancarlo Stanton's extension, so it is the biggest contract ever, but it is not really the biggest contract ever. It's a pretty big contract, and I think it's a reasonable contract. You're right, it took a really long time to get here. This was somewhat predictable, certainly once Machado signed because there was so much pressure on the Phillies to get this done because if they didn't end up with one of these guys, their fans were going to riot, so they had to make this move. At least they didn't want their fans to riot for the wrong reasons. Sometimes they riot for (laughs) the right reasons, but... I think this makes all the sense in the world for the Phillies to add this player at this time because they were in exactly the spot where you need to make an impact move like this. And this was the only impact player remaining. Here's the thing that I don't always understand. It seems like when guys are signing these monumentally huge contracts, they are... And we're talking about, you know, there's a no-trade clause in this deal, which obviously... You know, he he can waive if he so chooses, but we're talking about 13 years of this man's working life. And I know that only represents seven or eight months a year, but 13 years is, is a long time. And you wonder, like, I don't know, I, I like the city of Philadelphia. It's a cool town, <laughs> but like, I can't imagine how much more money you would have to pay me to, <laughs> this is the city that booed Mike Schmidt. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, at what point, like what, Manny Machado goes to San Diego, like is, San Diego maybe isn't the most exciting town in America, but it sure is nice. Uh, like if I was a baseball player who was like chill, you know, I, of course I would want to live in San Diego. It's a, it's the perfect town for a chill jock to live in. Mm-hmm. But like, what, like, what is the salary difference that would lead you to go play in Philadelphia, a city that is prime famous, I would say, I mean, first and foremost for the Liberty Bell, but probably second for booing its own sports stars. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and gritty. Yeah. Okay. So there's the big, the big three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or just to commit for this amount of time to do anything in any one particular place seems like kind of a concession. This is like half as long as Harper has lived to this point. <laughs> he is agreeing <laughs> to play for the Philadelphia Phillies, which <laughs> that suggests that those rumors in the last couple of days about how, oh, he didn't actually want to play for Gabe Kapler, he doesn't want to play for the Phillies, seems pretty baseless now because he has just signed away the rest of his career if he wants to to stay with the Phillies so seems like he kind of wanted to play there because the the money difference couldn't have been that huge here you know I think the one money difference that probably did come into it and I am I am unconvinced that in the end the Dodgers were willing to make this scale of commitment I think I believe the reports where they said that the Dodgers were willing to break annual value records, but were not willing to commit to 10 or 12 years. Mm-hmm. The difference between this and the offer that, that the Giants made is that the state taxes are higher in California. And that, you know, when you're talking about a quarter of a billion dollars or more, uh, actually does end up being kind of a lot of money. Although, you know, the, the honest truth is, what is the difference between 
it, depending on how many children you have, I guess, <laughs> or how many generations ahead you want to plan, what's the difference between 25 million and 300 million? Both are like the nicest house you can think of and all of the best stuff for the rest of your life. <laughs> right. I guess committing to live in one place if you're a very rich and famous baseball player is a little different than it is for most of us because you can live exactly where you want in that city during the season and you can live anywhere you want in the world for the rest of the year. So you're not really tied down. You do have to show up at the appointed place to play in the games, but that's about it. This makes sense because Boris gets his quote-unquote record contract and the Phillies get Harper at a very reasonable rate on a yearly basis. And yes, they had to sign up to have him through his age 38 season, but he doesn't take up much space against the competitive balance tax, as you're saying. So they can certainly go out and try to sign Mookie Betts or Mike Trout and bring Trout back to Philly when he is available or if he's available. So this doesn't really restrict their future spending. And just in terms of how this affects their 2019 chances, I think it's really dramatic because I took a look at the Fangraph's depth charts and projections before they updated them. The difference between teams in the NL East was really small. There was a, a seven-win gap between the Nationals and the Phillies at that point. The Phillies were in fourth place in the division according to Fangraph's projections, and they were just a win behind the Mets and the Braves. Baseball Prospectus had it even tighter with, I think, four wins separating the Nationals and the Phillies. But both of those systems had the Phillies in fourth, the Nationals in first. Now, after the update, Baseball Prospectus has the Phillies and the Nationals tied for first in the projected standings. And Fangrass has the gap, I think, about half as large as it was. So this is about as good a bang for your buck as you can get in terms of just marginal wins and increasing your playoff odds in this year. And obviously it's about more than just this year, but this is really a, a night and day difference. And there wasn't anyone else you could go get at this point in the offseason to make that kind of difference. It's about the terms of four presidents. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, what uh, in your heart, Ben, I want a non-equivocating answer to this. Okay. What player do you think Bryce Harper is for the projectable future, the next five years or six years? Uh, presuming no catastrophic injuries, what Bryce Harper do we get? I think he's about a five-win player. That is my feeling, which is maybe sort of splitting the difference between his best year and his worst years. But I kind of think that's what he is. Like, he was a top 10 hitter in baseball down the stretch last season. And having taken a really close look at his defense, I really think that last year was kind of an outlier, that he was maybe preserving himself in light of this coming payday, and that now that he has gotten paid and signed away the rest of his career, he will maybe go for more balls than he did last year. He has the potential, obviously, to have another huge season and have another MVP year, and maybe he will, but he's just between the injuries, between the up and down stats, it's not something I would expect or project at this point. So I would say that he's a solid all-star type player, but probably not all-time great except for the fact that he started so young that if he does play at that level, he'll probably end up as a Hall of Famer anyway. What about this, Ben? Do you think that Bryce Harper, 12 and a half years from now, will still be a Philadelphia Philly? <laughs> 
Probably not, right? Because it's hard to bet on anything staying the same for that amount of time. You figure that probably at that point he is not so good anymore, and when a player's not so good anymore, lots of things can happen. Maybe there can be a salary dump, maybe he gets hurt and quits, maybe it's a Pujol sort of situation, so I'd guess that he doesn't complete the 13 years, but I could see him getting close. I don't see why not. Wouldn't it be great if Bryce Harper got bald? <laughs> that would be a tragedy. <laughs> no, it'd be fantastic. We need more bald heroes. I want him to totally <laughs> Matt Williams out. I just want his all his gorgeous hair to fall out. And <laughs> and he just has one of those like I, I would my ideal hair for him is like that kind of fringe around the side. Uh-huh. Sort of like like I sort of imagine it long still long and blonde, but but fringed around the side like the like he's sort of the like the lead singer of a Van Halen tribute band or something. <laughs> My fear is that if he lost the hair up top, he would go even more overboard on the beard, and I don't know what that would look like. <laughs> so <laughs> might might look like mine. <laughs> <laughs> it really depends on the day with him because sometimes his hair just looks fantastic, and and I wouldn't want him to lose it. But other days he makes some questionable decisions with him that I don't think he deserves to have it. So one other thing that I want to mention about this is that. This is the culmination of a really active offseason for the Phillies. They've added Real Muto and Segura and McCutcheon and Robertson and on and on. And they have not been the only team that's been busy in this division. Even though the Nationals lost Harper, they added Corbin and Suzuki and Sanchez and every team in this division, other than the Marlins, who have sent their players to other teams in this division, has been busy. And even the Braves, who won the division last year, they added Josh Donaldson. The Mets have arguably been the busiest and most active of all. So this is, I think, shaping up to be baseball's best division, if not the NL Central, which has also been active. As I was just doing some research for an article about this, I looked up the teams that have added the most value this winter, and seven of the top eight are all in the NL, which is interesting because the NL was the better league last year, and I think the more interesting league, certainly the the more balanced league last year, and that's really going to be true this year. So the NL East... I think gives you the combination of four really good teams slugging it out and then the Marlins just doing like a rubber neck roadkill kind of act all season <laughs> long, which should be entertaining in its own way. Not to mention full seasons of Juan Soto and Ronald Acuna and Victor Robles and the intrigue of Harper playing his former team 19 times in a pennant race. I can't wait to watch the NL East. You know what, Ben? Can I tell you a secret about baseball outfits? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I really like those crazy Marlins uniforms. Uh-huh. Uh, that's that's the least classic baseball uniform that I genuinely think is great. I think it reflects the it reflects the aesthetics of the city in a wonderful way and it's it's actually very good looking and uh, two two thumbs up for crazy Marlins uniforms. And guess what? I also liked that home run sculpture. <laughs> oh, I love the home runs. Everyone except Derek Jeter loved the home run sculpture, I think. I think <laughs> it was almost universal approval rating except for him. That's that's what I'm looking for. I I saw a Marlins guy at a baseball game recently. Yeah. And when I say recently, I mean last year. Uh-huh. And you know what I thought? I thought, pretty good looking uniform, Marlins guy. <laughs> I'll ask you more about uniforms in just a moment. 
I think that even though it took way longer than any of us wanted it to, this was basically free agency functioning as designed at the very top of the market. Obviously, there are a lot of lesser guys who didn't get the offers they wanted and still haven't in some cases, but it tends to be teams like the Phillies and the Padres that go and get players like Harper and Machado, teams that are on the upswing, that were on the outside looking in in the previous season, but close enough to strike if they do make a major move, and that's what happened here. So the regatta and the submarine races run, and the boats have weighed anchor and the fish have taken the hooks and no more nautical metaphors. So we have done our duty. We have talked about the big move that went down today at a terrible time for us recording-wise. And so now we can get back to the rest of our regularly scheduled episode. And as mentioned, you are a Giants fan, and we are speaking at a strange time for Giants fans. As we will get into at greater length later, the team is coming off a couple of extremely lousy seasons, and yet it also has a new extremely smart person making baseball decisions. It's going hard after Bryce Harper. Smash Mouth is scooping people on Twitter. (laughs) Did you enjoy this unexpected Bryce Harper sweepstakes? Are you feeling deflated now? You know, it's funny, like, I have to say, I am the kind of sports fan who always feels a little embarrassed when things are going right for their teams. I have really been like an emotional wreck about the fact that the Warriors are the, you know, new Yankees. Um, No offense to your favorite (laughs) former team, but they're evil. Um, (laughs) I don't disagree. And so I, I feel like as a Giants fan, I'm much more comfortable in the years where they're just barely okay than in the years where everything goes right. And I think we're lucky. I am lucky. I'm the only person who's weird like this, <laughs> that they won three World Series with teams that just barely made the playoffs. Like there were mm-hmm. no embarrassingly great Giants teams in those years. And the, the only year that the Giants have been extraordinarily great in my lifetime is 1993, a year when they didn't make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. So I am actually more excited about the fact that the Giants finally have, you know, the Giants had the the great uh, general manager, Brian Sabian, for whatever it was, 20-some years. And, you know, despite me and Grant Brisby's angry posts in rec.baseball.sfgiants in 1997, uh, he did an amazing job. But one of the things that he didn't do was... Uh, bring in the kind of Ken Phelpsy baseball players that I enjoy watching. Like, mm-hmm. if I, my ideal baseball team is not that good, but has a lot of Matt Stairses on it. <laughs> right. And like, there five... aren't enough Matt Stairses on any team. At this <laughs> yeah. Point. No. But like, signing a switch pitcher and a five foot eight inch center <laughs> fielder whose main skill is that he gets a lot of walks because he's so small. Um, <laughs> these are the kind of moves that I've been demanding of the Giants for 20 years. There's no knuckleball pitchers on the team yet but if they could sign a couple two-way players that's kind of what i like to watch so so i'm i'm happy with the new direction and i also it feels great to be a a, the fan of a team who values the emotional relationship that you have with an entertainment product and particularly a sports team Mm -hmm. to the extent that I know that guys like Buster Posey, with whom, you know, I I have a really deep emotional relationship with Buster Posey for a guy who's never heard my name in his entire life. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm really grateful that I I trust the, the Giants to respect that relationship that I have with him, which is, you know, it's a it's a very special thing. I mean, I'm I'm also 
an A's fan. I, I grew up in San Francisco, and but my dad uh, had lived for 25 years in the East Bay and was a was an A's fan when I was a kid. And the A's, as much as they have done an amazing job of bringing in the kind of guys that I enjoy watching, I would give another example: late late career Doug Jones, where he just <laughs> threw five different kinds of changeup. <laughs> right. um, like as much as as much as I love that, I I see my friends who are who have a deep emotional deeper emotional relationship than I with the A's and and the suffering that they go through that every time they fall in love with a player they're gone so I do really enjoy rooting for a team that like respects and values the relationship that the fans have with it above and beyond just how many games we can win well, we will talk much more about the Giants shortly. Before we get to our guests, I wanted to ask a, a couple broader quick questions, which the first one is, I know that you have converted at least one person to baseball fandom because I happened to come across a tweet that said, I wasn't really into this baseball thing, but Jesse Thorne is so enthusiastic about it. I'm going to give it a <laughs> shot. I guess I don't know whether it actually took or not, but someone at least tried out baseball because you made it sound good. And we talk a lot on the show about being in a bubble and it's fan graph and it's this niche type of fandom and we look at the game with this sabermetric bent and probably doesn't represent all of casual fans let alone non-fans but you are sometimes I would venture to say usually talking to people who know care nothing about baseball and yet you make every effort to shoehorn baseball into any conversation when you can (laughs) so what is your approach there how do you try to sell baseball to non-baseball people that's a that's an interesting question. I mean, I would say that there there is a large part of our audience at Maximum Fun, the the company that I run, who are you know there there are plenty of uh, there are plenty of sports fans. There are also plenty of UGG sports ball types, mm-hmm. and I think that while I think it is reasonable to argue that basketball and football are more exciting and. You know, maybe football in particular is more brainy. That's something that I've I've come to uh, appreciate over the past few years is the kind of intellectual rigor required to to be good at football. Definitely more brain damaging too. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, but I, I think that one of the great appeals of baseball for people who might be more intellectually oriented uh, or even artistically oriented is, you know, th- there was this um, there was this Selected Shorts, which is this still running public radio program that has dramatic readings of short stories. There was an episode when I was a kid that was dedicated to baseball that my mom bought me on cassette tape and I probably listened to, you know, 20 times. And it was it was, you know, John Updike's uh, Hub Fans Bid Kid Adieu and, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And it was hosted by Roger Angel and Bart Giamatti. And one of them said to the other, and I, I don't remember which one it was, said it, it always occurred to me that intellectuals like baseball because it goes slowly enough that they can understand it. <laughs> yeah. And I think that one of the magical things about baseball is that there is so much space. Like when, when, a, when a basketball fan, and, and I like other sports as well, but, but when a basketball fan says to me that baseball is boring, I tend to agree. Mm-hmm. And I think that is one of the things that is special about it. There is enough air in baseball that there is time to think about each thing as it happens. And there is time to kind of weave a story around it. When you are swept up in a basketball game, there is a lot of individual beauty and grace in it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's it's a remarkable athletic achievement. But being swept up in it doesn't give you the opportunity to 
construct the scaffolding around it that baseball does. And like for me, you know, I grew up a baseball fan, but I think like I was bored in school and I just needed something to occupy my mind. And from age seven to age 14 or 15, I I probably read three or 400 books about baseball. And, mm-hmm. you know, every I, I bought all the Bill James baseball abstracts at a at a church yard sale and read them all through. And I had every rotisserie baseball book even before I had ever played rotisserie baseball. And there was a, you know, a used bookstore. There, there was a used bookstore by my house where the owner would save baseball books and then just loan them to me when they came in. Like he'd come out when I was walking past home from the subway and uh, he'd be like, Jesse, I got this, I got my turn at bat by Ted Williams for you. Can you bring it back for me in a week or two? <laughs> and so for me, it's like a very comfortable place to put my my mind and my time. And it's it's really beautiful. I mean, like I, I admire somebody like you. You know, one of the reasons that I never tried to work in baseball was I was just like, you know, I went to arts high school. I was like, what would it be like if I had to hang out with jocks all the time? <laughs> like, like, I like watching baseball, but like, do, would I like it if I had to like hang out with people who played baseball and that was like their main thing? Mm-hmm. And I even played baseball. Like, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not against doing it. But you know, when when the definition of a of a weirdo in baseball is a guy who throws left handed, <laughs> <Right. laughs> maybe comedy is the place for me. But um, but it is a it's it's such a it's such a secure and comforting part of your everyday life, and it's like it really is every day, right? It's like a thing that is you know I think of my my best friend Peter's dad Mark, who was a a house painter, a house painter with a master's degree in literature from Yale, if I remember correctly. But he was a house painter, and how much of his life was built upon turning on the radio and listening to the Giants game, mm-hmm. you know, listening to Hank Greenwald or John Miller. And... Baseball. It's better than watching paint dry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an, it's an old friend in a way that, in a way that football and uh, basketball can't be. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, we get enough excitement and anxiety elsewhere in our lives, right? We need something meditative and slow. And uh, some people may find it soporific, but <laughs> I guess we are just wired this way. Where <laughs> hey, my buddy Andy Zaltzman it feels the same way about cricket, and I'm like, wow, that is next level. <laughs> <laughs> right. The other thing I wanted to ask you: we never talk about fashion on this podcast, even baseball fashion, because I don't think any of us has ever been qualified to have an opinion about fashion. My first co-host wore black hoodies and corduroys every single day. My second co-host wore sweaters every day. Nothing against sweaters. And (laughs) I wear pajamas or sweatpants for 90% of these podcasts. So I just, I don't weigh in on even baseball uniforms. But since you do know things about fashion and you care about dressing well and pay some attention to that part of your life, I wonder whether you have any baseball uniform opinions you'd care to share whether it's about your favorite or least favorite team uniforms or just general observations about what works and what doesn't on baseball apparel. Yeah, I mean, as a guy, I mean, I have literally, so I have a menswear blog, as you alluded to in my intro, called Put This On. 
and we have a store and I have designed baseball caps for the store. Like this is a true, <laughs> a true passion. And I was like, and I was really exacting about it. Like I am not happy with the level of quality that Ebbets Field flannels can generate, <laughs> the highest quality com- commercial product. I was like, I'm going to find, I found a woman who used to work for this company called Cooperstown Ball Cap that made their hats one at a time to make our hats for us because I was, I, I wanted it to be the best of the best. But yeah, I mean, I have more uniform opinions than anyone ever in the history of the earth, except for Paul Lucas of UniWatch. Right. And I think that part of the appreciation of sports is aesthetic. And, you know, just as I loved watching, you know, Michael Jordan's kind of elegance as a basketball player, I love the elegance of a St. Louis Cardinals uniform. Mm-hmm. I think... You know, if you want to the Cardinals fans who tuned in for the Cardinals preview. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I could I could also have a lot of opinions about Craig Paquette if you need them. (laughs) Um, But uh, I think that uh, like if if you want an if you want an easy opinion, of course, you'll be shocked to learn that I'm I'm strongly pro stirrup. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, I'm strongly pro strong choices. I like. (laughs) I like the I, I like the somewhat frankly somewhat ugly Manny Ramirez baggy pants look. Uh-huh. I like flat brim baseball caps, even though maybe my preference is a is a classic arc. <laughs> but stirrups is one where I I have a friend named Roman Mars who does a podcast called Ninety Nine Percent Invisible about design, and I have never been a real journalist who like pitches things to people. That's just not part of my vocabulary. I've always frankly until I joined NPR and they told me I was a journalist. I believed myself to be an entertainer, <laughs> but uh, but I, I I love listening to Roman's show ninety nine percent invisible, and I will admit that I like called him on the phone and said, Roman, can I pitch you a story about stirrups? <laughs> <laughs> and he ran it. He did it. <laughs> <laughs> it's helpful to have friends in podcast places. Yeah, I was like, just so you know, you don't have to pay me, and also, I'm not going to do any reporting. <laughs> All right. Well, we should get to our guest. I will just say it is somewhat intimidating to be doing interviews with a a person who has hosted a show in which he interviews interviewers about interviewing, especially (laughs) after you crowdsourced questions for these segments on Twitter, which is cheating (laughs) as if you needed any help to ask for Giants questions. Come on. (laughs) Well, it would would have been weird if I only asked for Cardinals questions. But I think think, think we'll do fine, right? I, I, I don't know that much about about the Cardinals, but I just dropped Craig Paquette, so I feel like I'm ready for this. <laughs> right. All right, so we will take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Will Leach to talk about the Cardinals, followed by Julie Parker on the Giants. Joined now by Will Leach, the only person I know whose credits and professional affiliations may take longer to list than Jesse's. He is, unsurprisingly, the host of The Will Leach Show, It Would Be Weird If He Weren't, which just started its second season on Sports Illustrated TV. He writes for MLB.com and New York Magazine and also Golf Magazine, despite not being a golfer. He writes and talks about movies as half of Grierson and Leach. He is Leach. And maybe most relevant to our topic today, he co-hosts the Cardinals podcast, Seeing Red. 
He just finished speaking to Harold Reynolds, and now he's joining us, which goes to show that he's conversant with every variety of discourse about <laughs> baseball. Will, welcome back. Yeah, I tried to get Harold to sit in on this, but uh, <laughs> explaining what a podcast was took a really long time. So, <laughs> I think Harold Reynolds' uh, baseball broadcasting can only be done on one of those tiny fields that they have. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh. Ben, you are you are you are here uh, more often than I am, and it is hard for me. I'm at the MLB Network Studios now. It's so difficult for me. I always just wait for no one's until no one's looking, and I'll just go out there and just run little like jogs around the bases. <laughs> I'm like, I am a giant. I destroy all. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it is a good simulation of Kaiju baseball. <laughs> Harold is actually the permanent co-host. I've been trying to keep it quiet. But <laughs> we all assumed. The secret is out. So, Will, it is the studied opinion of our pal Joshian that Cardinals fans are sort of spoiled and that even when things are bad for Cardinals fans, things are actually good relative to just about every other team. And the Cardinals have not made the playoffs for a few years, but they have not been a bad baseball team. I consider you the not even self-appointed representative of Cardinals <laughs> fandom, so I will ask you to speak for everyone and ask, are Cardinals fans upset, and do they have a reason to be upset, and is happiness and success all just relative, and we should all reserve the right to be mad about our teams no matter how good they are? Yeah, I think everyone has the right to do that. The number of uh, number of Cubs fans, if I may bring up the Cubs immediately just to annoy them, uh, <laughs> that told me that like, oh, if all we do is just win a World Series, that will just buy me so much. I think it was old Bill Simmons had his five year rule, and I think I think anything the Red Sox win the World Series and the Cubs winning the World Series and the Eagles winning the Super Bowl have proven there is no five year rule. People want like the, the, there's there's the, there's the old great joke that uh, that George Carlin had about uh, someone asked him what does doing cocaine make you feel like he said. It makes you feel like doing more cocaine. <laughs> and that's basically what winning is, right? Like you, you don't like win and be like, ah, oh, that's all I needed. And so, yeah, so of course it's all relative. If, you, if you're a Mariners fan, the last thing you want to hear is that a Cardinals, the Cardinals have missed the playoffs for three years in a row and the fans are really angry because screw off. It's been 20, it's been almost 20 years. However, if the Cardinals, the Cardinals had made, you know, I think they made four or five consecutive in LCS. They, uh, they've had this great run of success and more to the point, you know, the the Cardinals fans are always there. This is not a – you know, John Moselak, the general manager for more than a decade now, his whole thing has always been perpetual contention. You know, the Cardinals never go through the boom and bust period that a lot of teams go through. And frankly, which is kind of the standard operating procedure for every team that's not the the Yankees, the Red Sox, or the, the Dodgers. Even the Red Sox kind of went through it mm -hmm. uh, a little bit. So, you know, I think because of that, not making the playoffs for three consecutive years is going to be particularly frustrating because – this is a team that this is all self-imposed by the Cardinals. The Cardinals are not saying, oh, no, we hope we'll be good. And the fans are being unreasonable every year. The Cardinals say we are trying to make the World Series this year. So I think it is reasonable for Cardinal fans to be upset when then they don't make the playoffs for three consecutive years. And frankly, they're reacting accordingly this year. They've they've poured a lot of resources into this year. They're on. This is something the Cardinals usually don't like to do. They usually say we're thinking down the road. They're always thinking long term. This is one of the first times you've actually heard them talking about this year is incredibly important to us. So yeah, I, I think that fans are upset and I think uh, it usually takes the Cardinals a while to register that because people are always out to the games and there's, the, the people are so kind of obsessed with them. I think they've kind of registered a little bit this year. 
I think in a just world, Cardinals fans would be happy about their baseball team and angry about that weird pizza, the weird <laughs> pizza they oh, eat in St. I am, Louis. I am staying out of the emos conversation. I, I'm, <laughs> I have no, I, I, no matter what, you can't make people happy on that. I lived in St. Louis, for the record, I live in Athens, Georgia. I lived in St. Louis for a year and a half at the end of the 90s. And uh, so I, my thought about emos pizza is that people in St. Louis like emos pizza. And that is the end of the sentence. <laughs> well, pr- practically speaking, when you say that the Cardinals' plan is to compete every year, other than not rebuilding, how is it possible to do that? What is different about the way the Cardinals run their team? Well, it's funny. It's the it's the thing that's different is in large part one of the things that the fans are actually pushing them to get away from now. They have been very wary of really getting into the free agent market, of making that big, uh, huge jump. And for the record, they have tried. You know, they they were very close to getting David Price. They, there was a there was a joke for the while for a while that the Cardinals were perpetually second uh, when it came to free agency. They finished second for David Price. They finished second for Jason Hayward. They finished second for Jeff Samarja, all of which have turned out fine, by the way. To turn they they finished second for Albert Pujols, for that matter. So, uh, and a large part of that is I wrote about this in the Baseball Perspectives Annual years ago, but I think it's a kind of a key thing to remember about the Cardinals. Their whole, the, you know, when they brought in Jeff Lou now uh, and brought in, and Walt Jockety left, a large part of what they were trying to do was keep Pujols. That's really been kind of the strategy. They recognized we're going to have to spend a ton of money to keep Albert Pujols. After the Cardinals won the World Series in 2006, they had the worst farm system in baseball. After they won in 2011, they had the best farm system in baseball because that their whole goal was to basically what you're seeing teams do all the time now is to try to have young cost controlled talent, fix the farm system, uh, reevaluate everything you're doing with the explicit sense that they were going to, they had to do that to make sure they had enough money to get Albert Pools. Now, as it turned out, they did not get Albert Pools. And I think a lot of times there's this sense of the Cardinals, the Cardinals were so smart for not re-signing Albert Pools. Like they were devastated <laughs> that they didn't re-sign Albert Pools. They were very upset about it. But like that was always the goal was to once Pujols left, then it was like, okay, now we're already building this kind of foundation. The Cardinals are a team, you know, the, the fan base of the Cardinals, it's been since the 90s. It, it's been so long that the Cardinals have not had like a relevant team that the manager was a, they fired disgraced manager Joe Torre for not winning enough games. <laughs> like, like that's how long it's been since the, the Cardinals have not been in regular contention. And so it is expected. And, you know, I, I would argue I know there's this sense that the Cardinals are Cardinals fan base is always going to be there. They're always going to have their teams. I don't know. I remember the Joe Torre years. I remember when the best hitter on the team. I remember when they brought in Bob Horner, like from from Japan, for a year. Like the mid nineties were uh, the early the mid nineties were a terrible time for the Cardinals. This was a time when Anheuser Busch owned the team and had kind of lost interest. There were fears they were going to move to East St. Louis. There were fears they were going to try to they were going to move altogether. Like the Cardinals, St. Louis is still a town that's I think. Well, well documented is a, but it's a town that's kind of in the transition. It's kind of going through some difficult times. The Cardinals are such a big part of that that there's this expectation that the Cardinals have to be there every year, and so that they are, act accordingly, and therefore don't give a lot of those huge contracts in a way that I think now the way the game. It worked for a long time. I would argue now a lot of baseball has caught up with what the Cardinals are and now kind of operating – everyone operates the same way now. And so I think that's why a lot of fans would like them to spend a little bit more now. But, I mean the Cardinals, for their, for all the talk of them being all in on 2019, currently have a lower payroll than they did last year. So I think there's a level of frustration there as well. We had you on the show for a very cathartic Mike Matheny postmortem, mm. and now you have seen a partial season from his successor. So Mike Schilt – Good manager named Mike or just better <laughs> manager named Mike than the last one? 
certainly, I, I really just want to go back to that moment uh, when they <laughs> fired Matheny again. It is worth noting. Uh, I, I I feel bad about saying this because I have no nothing personal against Mike Matheny, but it really felt like that that situation. Not only was he really a bad manager, but he it really felt like he was intractable. Like, you know, the ownership really loved him. He, what he seemed to represent was kind of this antiquated thing that the, the Cardinals seemed to be ahead in a lot of ways, but really stuck in this kind of – kind of in Matheny muck. And Mosellock had fired Matheny partly out of a – it was kind of a strut. By the way, like like after they won 2011, he's like, you know what? I'm so good. I can mold this manager into what I want him to be. And it did not work out. And it really felt like the Cardinals were never – Cardinals, like they changed managers never. Like, they, like they've had three managers since the mid-90s. So, you know, they, they're wary of changing managers. So making that move, I the number of people who – I do the – Seeing Red podcast with Bernie Miklos, the number of people who sent us pictures or sent us or sent us audio of them at their Thanksgiving saying what they were thankful for and that Mike <laughs> Matheny was not the manager of the Cardinals. And I do think it was, it was a really a shocking number of people. I felt bad about not doing it myself. I'm going to save it for next Thanksgiving. So not having him in there, the main issue with him, there were tactical issues and so on. But I really think the main issue with him, and I think where Schilt has an advantage Matheny, particularly toward the end, was quite obviously not on the same page as the front office. Uh, in the point where there was an ongoing joke where at the beginning of every spring training, they would basically make roster moves in preparation of what Matheny would do. <laughs> as opposed, like they like they would always, they, you know, Matheny loved to have his break glass in the bullpen, long reliever that he never used. And so they they basically got rid of that role so he'd have to use people. And then he would just find some, he'd find a starter he didn't like and put there. And uh, I, but when they traded Alan Craig, who he kept putting out in right field over Oscar Tavares at the time, the joke was that like, don't think of this mostly like making an Alan Craig trade. Think of him as putting like a cone around his dog's collar so that he does not bite himself. <laughs> Schilt is on the same page now with the front office. He's a Mosellock guy. He's worked with Mosellock since before Matheny even came in to the franchise. So he clearly is on the same page as them. And, you know, clearly you see from a lot of the Cardinals players uh, across the board, uh, Dexter Fowler, I think most prominently, the weight that was kind of off their shoulders. You know, Matheny was kind of a red-ass guy. You know, it was kind of an old school. For a guy that was hired young, that was hired that meant to be, you know, good with young players, he was very kind of traditional in a way that clearly chafed uh, uh, with a lot of people in the clubhouse. Schilt is, you know, Schilt was, had been with the team already. They all knew who he was. He Last year, he instituted this daily meetings thing before every game, which I have to tell you, as a writer that works out of home sounds like a nightmare to me. I don't want to go to a daily meeting, but the team really did respond to it. And it really feels there's just a lighter kind of vibe. And when you add that to the strategic advantages that you're obviously going to get by not being Mike Matheny and uh, and the idea that he's on the same page with the front office, I think everyone feels feels pretty comfortable about where Schilt is. And Schilt seems comfortable in kind of his spot. There's, there's this great story of he was on the Cardinals cruise uh, this summer. This Cardinals, the Cardinals cruise is just this promotional thing where just a bunch of people all decide, oh, we'll just go on the, we'll go on a cruise through Florida with like the assistant bench coach for the Memphis Redbirds <laughs> and say that we're part of the Cardinals cruise. But Schilt went on it and there were all of these stories, a very honest guy he's a bachelor he's been married to baseball forever and and there's there's all these stories that people would like just go into the bar at like 9 30 at night on the cardinals cruise and mike schultz was just sitting there having a beer looking at like baseball stuff and like he was just like oh hi i'm mike and like yeah we know you're the cardinals manager <laughs> this is amazing and i think that there is there is something kind of unassuming about him that i think everyone responds to but uh uh i i would say I'll put it this way when it schultz 
has has the advantage of not being Mike Matheny, but also has the advantage of being comfortable with what the Cardinals are doing and being willing to communicate that to the players in a way that Matheny wasn't able to. He's the very rare manager who was not a professional baseball player. Is that a disadvantage or counterintuitively an advantage? I think, you know, it's funny because I one of the things that helps is that he's been with the organization for so long. He was actually, uh, there's all this talk of Stubby Clapp, who is the manager of the Memphis Redbirds. Stubby Clapp, I'm just going to say it one more time, Stubby <laughs> Clapp. I feel uh, like any talk of Stubby Clapp yeah. is good talk about Stubby Clapp. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he interviewed for the Blue Jays job uh, in, in the offseason. He's, he's now the uh, third base coach for the Cardinals. He got the promotion. But the co- the manager of the Memphis Redbirds before him was Schilt. And he also had won championships with the, Redbird, with the Memphis Redbirds. He's been in the organization kind of at every level. So if you've been with the Cardinals for any stretch of time, you've known Schilt. He's just been kind of the fabric of what they've been doing. Uh, When uh, it was considered by many, a, and I think rightly so, when Schilt was promoted to bench coach last year, it was clearly a warning to Matheny because everyone knew how respected Schilt was and everyone knew if there was a firing, he'd be the guy that would take over. So uh, you saw certain tendencies uh, for all the talk of Schilt being so radically different. You know, the first, one of the first things he did when he came in was put move Dexter Fowler up in the order and give him regular playing time, which, as awful as Dexter Fowler was last year, was a controversial thing to do. He looked a little bit better, but I think what that did was it showed the rest of the team he's got our he's he's one of us, he's one of our guys, and I, and we can argue whether that's a soft factor or whether it's not, but clearly it was the sort of move that got him in the good graces of of, of the team and would make the idea that he's never played a, a, a more more relevant. We've probably buried the lead a little bit in this segment in that the Cardinals got Paul Goldschmidt. That seems (laughs) worth mentioning at some point. I thought we were just going to do half an hour about Schilt. (laughs) (laughs) The name on everyone's tongue is Schilt. We did 10 minutes on Matheny and I didn't even ask about Matheny. You just, you got to let it go, Will. For the record, that happens on the movie podcast too. You just mention any, like, hey, we're talking about the the movie Fighting With My Family, but first 20 minutes of anger about Mike Matheny. (laughs) So Goldschmidt fits on every roster, obviously because he's Paul Goldschmidt. And if you have someone at first base, you move him to make room for Paul Goldschmidt. But he probably fits a little more awkwardly on the Cardinals than he would on some teams. There's been a a bit of a carousel that has happened as a result of Goldschmidt being traded for. So two questions about him. One, are you expecting to wake up to a Paul Goldschmidt extension announcement at some point soon? And two, how do they sort out the rest of the roster to deal with the after effects here? Yeah, when it comes to the extension, I think... uh... Uh, I think even Moselas kind of on record saying they are not even – they're going to wait for him to get to St. Louis. They want him to see – because a large part of the whole thing is when Goldschmidt plays, plays their his want first him to game taste of the pizza. Yeah, he, exactly. <laughs> they, they want to taste the pizza and go, go, down, go down to the Laclete's <laughs> Landing and see uh, – hang out and smell the Mississippi. Um, <laughs> but uh, he, they want him to have that opening day Cardinals thing where they bring everybody back and like Bob Gibson's there and everybody all comes back in the ugly red jackets and they all parade around in convertibles. It's the big opening day thing for the Cardinals. They want a large part of the thing the Cardinals are always trying to sell people is why they feel more comfortable trading for people before they sign them, like Matt Holiday most famously and Mark McGuire before him, is they want him to see, look how much, look what you can have here. Look how much they love you. Look how much you adore you. And the, the Cardinals fans are going to go nuts for him uh, this year. And they, they, they want that, him to see that before they really 
get deep into the negotiations. Now, whether it's going to knock any money off his price, I doubt. But I, I know that that's what Mathe- that's what Moselak. I can't even. I keep saying Matheny. He's in my brain. He's behind <laughs> me right now. That Moselak is very. Uh, he's on record saying he, they're going to do that. But yeah, I think clearly now that Arenado, another person the Cardinals have kind of lusted after for a few years, is not going to be on the market. I think Goldschmidt is is a high priority for them. Not going after Harper or Machado, I think, is a sign that you know they want Goldschmidt. They they want they want to sign him, and I think that if he's amenable for it, they're really going to try to make that happen. But a lot of this is seeing what happens this year too. I mean, again, so, as we talked about, they're so into kind of to what they what 2019 is going to be. Uh, as for moving it around, they are more confident about Matt Carpenter at third base than uh, I would have thought a couple of years ago. They actually moved Matt Carpenter to first base, saying exclusively he's going to be there, and now they moved him back over uh, for Goldschmidt. He uh, that said, talking of Schilt, back to Schilt. Uh, he actually uh, uh, made a lot of moves with Carpenter last year on improving his infield defense. Jose Kendo helped him as well. What they're trying to do, uh, that one of the main adjustments that they made was they've actually moved him farther away from the line. He actually talks about how that's made a big difference, saying that like, heck, anything over there I'm not going to be able to get to anyway. He actually moves better to his left, his left regardless, being being left, uh, being left right-handed. So he, the metrics were actually a little higher on Carpenter than necessarily he might look at third base. Remember, he used to play second base. He didn't play it well, but he did play second base. So I think the more issues with his arm and the early reports from spring training said the arm seems okay. It's a semi-awkward fit, but you also, you have other options too if you need to uh, late in the game. If, if, if Carpenter's really having trouble, you've, Jed Jerko is still on the roster. Yara Munez is still around. Like there's, there's guys, if you have defensive issues, you, you can move around if you have to. But I don't, I think they are comfortable with Carpenter at third, particularly because uh, they're, they're so solid defensively up the middle. Uh, Colton Wong is, I think, probably should have won a gold glove last year. Harrison Bader's great in center field, obviously. And Paul DeYoung is someone who really only started playing shortstop uh, in the last two or three years. The numbers were really high on him as well. So I feel like they feel if Carpenter's arm can hold up, they're comfortable with him being at third base. But yeah, you're right. If they have, like, it's Paul Goldschmidt at first, they'll figure it out uh, if they have to. Is there a halo effect to bringing Goldschmidt onto the team, a guy who's just like an exceptional athlete in addition to being a great hitter, an exceptional defender, and by all accounts, a good dude? Yeah, well, it's certainly, uh, considering who's been, like, we talk about Matt Carpenter moving off at of first base. He was not actually a very good first baseman. <laughs> like, if that was actually not really a skill for him. Uh, and then the other person they put over there was Jose Martinez, who was even worse. So, and uh, he was he's one of the worst defensive. I, I, I make, It seems weird to watch Jose Martinez play first base. And you're like, wow, is there anywhere else that we can hide him? Like, he's in a position <laughs> where he usually try to hide someone. Uh, so I think one of the things they're hopeful about Goldschmidt is, I mean, he's just, he's a terrific defensive first baseman. So he'll, like, even if there's issues with Carpenter's arm, there are things that Goldschmidt can be helpful with that as well. He kind of uh, ties it up across the board. They also, you know, they one of the things they really want out of Goldschmidt. It's interesting in the spring training games they've actually been batting uh, Carpenter first, which is the, that's the plan. Goldschmidt third and putting Fowler uh, in the middle. Of course, Fowler was terrible last year, but he's been good in the past. And more to the point, they are all in on Fowler. Like the, the fact that they didn't even sniff at Harper this offseason was a sign how much they really want Har- uh, Fowler to get it back. And to the point that they will put him in between two of the best hitters in baseball last year just to get him going. I think that's what they kind of like about Goldschmidt. Well, in addition to all the other awesome things that are to like about Goldschmidt is putting him, it eases pressure off, say, an Ozuna. They, there was a lot of pressure on Ozuna to come in and be this huge bat last year. Now there's a little less pressure on him. There's a little less pressure on Fowler to, to, to you think, you, the idea is that he'll be able to get more pitches to hit or, or with Goldschmidt on deck and behind him. So 
that generally speaking, there is the notion that even though the offense was not bad last year, the having Goldschmidt middle raises everybody up and makes it so Ozuna doesn't have to come in and be the savior. And Fowler doesn't. Uh, Fowler can can maybe get some see some pitches they didn't see last year. Is it reasonable to have those expectations of Dexter Fowler? Is he prepared to return to competency, much less being good? Yeah, that's the thing that worries me about. Fowler, particularly if I get to bat him second, like I can't imagine the second thing is going to last very long if he hits even close they did last year because the Cardinals are not just counting on Fowler to be better than last year because he was so terrible last year. He needs to be good. Like he needs to, and he was not bad two years ago. I think there's this thought that since he got to the Cardinals, he struggled. That's not true. I think his first year in St. Louis, he was good. He was as good as he was his last year in Chicago, but that, that play, they were very happy with how he was that year, even though there were some injury issues. It's just, he fell off the cliff so much last year. And listen, there were injuries all across the board. He, uh, he had all sorts of issues with Matheny and, and uh, there were like tons of issues with, he had issues with Moselock at some point. Clearly they have shown Listen, there. If Fowler does, if Fowler is what he was last year, they will drop him out of the lineup. I mean, they have they have other options. Jose Martinez was just a uh, just kind of kind of an extension. It was really more they gave him a raise over the next couple of years. Uh, and Tyler O'Neill, who is the uh, who is the son of former Mister Mister Canada bodybuilding competition, and looks it. Uh, and so he's uh, he's another option they have in right field. In fact, that's something they may even consider if Fowler struggles a little bit is potentially pl- uh, if Fowler because Fowler's a better left-handed hitter than he's a right-handed hitter. So they could potentially platoon in there if they, if they needed to. Uh, but right now they are all in on trying to get Dexter Fowler right. He's they still have three years on that contract. They are really going to try to do that. But again, there's so much into 2019. If he is what he was last year, or even just only a little bit better, that's not going to be enough. And they, they will make a move. Uh, and maybe maybe it's not signing someone, but it'll be O'Neill out there. Or it'll be Martinez out there. They've got other options. Could ask the same bounce back question about Marcelo Zuna, although I tend to think he already has bounced back and he had some shoulder issues and then he was really good in the second half of the season. But I'm also curious about Harrison Bader, who I think you actually prompted a a Joe Sheehan newsletter answer by asking Joe what he thought of Harrison Bader. So now I'm just parroting your own question (laughs) back at you. How much offensive regression is coming from Harrison Bader and does it matter if he's going to catch everything? Uh, yeah, there's there's definitely going to be some some regression. You know, I think that he was not a great hitter in the minor leagues. That's actually one of the reasons that I mean, you look at him play center field now, and he had this great quote last year saying that because uh, uh, you know he, he showed up and he's so fast and he wasn't brought up like you didn't you knew Bader was a good player, but you didn't you know you knew he was a good defensive player and you knew he was fast, but I don't think people quite realized how fast he was and how great he was. And he said, yeah, well they didn't have Statcast in Memphis, so you guys got it now. You know how fast I am, uh, which I thought was. I was I was kind of impressed by that answer. But uh, so I think that I, I, defensively, he's so key to what they're doing, particularly with, uh, with, with, with whoever, if it's not Tyler O'Neill, who's a good defensive player, if it's Martinez or Fowler and Ryfield, he's actually going to have to do a lot there. Offensively, he's not, I mean, if he is a, I tend to think of him the way that the Cardinals thought of like mid-aughts Yadier Molina. Uh, Tony LaRusso had a famous line of a, if, if, if Molina goes over his next 30, he's still helping this team win. Over 30 seems like a lot, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I do that. I think that's the general principle with Bader, but I think that's the thing is what, 
Bader's if Bader is a league average hitter, he's fine. Even if he's a little under a league average hitter, it's still okay as long as other guys in the lineup are holding up. I think that's where we get into Azuna. Like if like if there's a, a while back, like Colton Wong is a great defensive player, but a couple years ago when he was really struggling on offense, they had to take him out of the lineup, not because they expect him to be an offensive player, but there were holes elsewhere in the lineup and they needed to improve those guys. For me, uh, that's kind of where Bader is. Bader is very much in the, you have to, if, if the lineup is going fine, you don't really care if Bader is a, even a league average offensive player because he's so good on defense. But if there's other uh, kind of leaks springing up, if Ozuna's not all the way back, if Fowler's not uh, what you need him to be, if Wong struggles again or DeYoung takes a step back, that's when you start wondering, okay, do we need to get more uh, offense out of that position? And that's where, it's, where it affects Bader. As for Ozuna, he's, he has the uh, uh, every, every, it feels like every year there's a spring training, oh, that guy looks too fat. <laughs> Ozuna, <laughs> Ozuna is that guy this year. He actually put, has put on a little bit of the weight in the offseason. Uh, I feel like uh, that people would not care one way or the other if he was really – if he'd have been what they thought he was going to be last year. And I know a lot of his numbers, he's been hitting the ball hard. A lot of people think that he is uh, – he's going to break through this year. They need him to because uh, uh, you know he's going to be banging behind Goldschmidt. They're kind of counting on him to be big. And it kind of goes back into the Bader idea of if, if, if Ozuna is hitting well, it really doesn't matter how well Bader hits, but if he struggles, that's another hole in the lineup, and then you start then you start maybe talking about putting O'Neill in center field, and you're hoping it doesn't get to that. This isn't technically a question, but my producer Kevin Ferguson, who's the producer of my show Bullseye, is running the board for me right now, and he just held up a big electric sign that said, <laughs> "Tyler O'Neill looks like Brad Pitt in Burn After Reading." <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that's fantastic. Oh man, I will. That is what that we need. Okay, I, if I can somehow get, I'm bringing this up on the next Seeing Red podcast and trying to because I want this to stick. I want this to stick because Bader is because Bader and O'Neill they're both like young, like uh, like Bader already. They they, they call Bader Laxpro. Because he just looks like an old lax, bro. And he's actually from upstate New York, which is kind of amazing. Baseball players never come from upstate New York. So he kind of has the lacrosse pedigree anyway. So uh, get, getting O'Neal, who again, he, again, he's a little bit more jacked version of that Brad Pitt uh, character. I mean, literally his dad was Mr. Canada. He had a yeah. walk-off homer last year. And like the Cardinals are one of those teams that do that thing where they rip the jersey off the guy after he hits a home run. And it was, it got a little bit too hot for TV I think, <laughs> <laughs> when that was going on. It was honestly, honestly, I imagine that his workout routine now that I think of him as Brad Pitt and burn after reading is that <laughs> scene from burn after reading where John Malkovich is doing step aerobics in his boat and he's going, you fuckers, I'm coming. <laughs> it's Brad Pitt's body from Troy. Chad Feldheimer. <laughs> Chad Feldheimer. That's the great. I, I, I think you ought to be a worried about the security of your shit. <laughs> so you mentioned Martinez, and he just did sign an extension, but that does not mean he's a Cardinal for life or even for the next month or two. That seemed to be an effort to keep him from being tempted by an offer from an NPB team, possibly. So he doesn't really have a place on this roster. He may not have a place on an NL team, period. And yet every other team knows that. So what happens here? Is he not long for this roster? Yeah, I think that they really thought at some point 
in the offseason they were going to be able to trade him for a reliever. Uh, I think that they, I think they thought the Rays would have more interest than they did. The 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 Rays didn't. Uh, he kind of seemed to fit there, and and they didn't make that deal. Of course, so the Nelson Cruz seemed to fit there. That didn't happen either. So I think talk to Jeff if you could, if you could get that, if you get on that, <laughs> that'd be great. But I do think that uh, it is an awkward fit. But I have to say he's not. A, I mean, he's a horrible first baseman. He is a merely bad right fielder. <laughs> so again, it talks to that kind of idea of if Bader, they count so much on Bader in center field that if they need to get a bat in the lineup, the first thing they'll do is probably put him in right uh, if, if Fowler's starting the struggle. Frankly, I think Martinez may be starting opening day and left. I think there's a little bit of concern whether Ozuna's going to be fully ready. So that's another possibility. Right now, they consider him insurance on Fowler or insurance on Ozuna. Uh, and, you know, considering... You know, he's already 31 years old. They got him off the scrap heap from, from Kansas City a few years ago. So he's actually under contract long enough that, theoretically speaking, if the designated hitter does happen to come to the National League, he may he seems extraneous, but he doesn't seem extraneous, frankly, in a way that Jed Jerko does. Jed Jerko actually had a pretty good year last year and is a very valuable player. But there is no place for him on this roster at all, particularly if they're going to keep Yaro Munoz, who's, a, who's also kind of a utility uh, infielder who, you know, this is the story of baseball in 2019, right? They're basically the same player. Jerko's maybe a little bit better, but Munoz is a ton cheaper. And mm-hmm. so they'll always keep the guy that's a ton cheaper. Having both those guys is a little uh, it's, it's a little unnecessary. It's definitely redundant to have them. Martinez, right now, there's a spot for him. Uh, and listen, he for you can make a pretty strong case other than Carpenter. Martinez was the best hitter last year. He was certainly the most consistent hitter they had all last year. I think that they felt just kind of giving that away, even with the defensive issues, was something they weren't willing to do. And listen, he is – and you talk about clubhouse people. He is without question the most beloved player in the Cardinals clubhouse. Like they love Jose Martinez. And I think there was a story – Derek Gould had a story in the Post-Dispatch uh, of when Martinez extension, which was, again – Kind of an extension, like like they it wasn't they bought out two arb years, but just barely. Like it was really it was really just like tossing a little money his way, just say don't worry, you're not going to Japan. But there was a huge like there was they said there was a huge huge cheer in the clubhouse across the board because they love Jose Martinez. So I think they felt value in kind of keeping him around for now. But yeah, I I don't under, I don't quite see the value of a 34 year old Jose Martinez, which is what he'll be and still be under contract to the Cardinals. The Cardinals also employ pitchers, which one would not know from <laughs> this preview yes. so far. Yes. What is your Carlos Martinez panic level? And if Martinez has a more serious injury than we know right now, can the rest of the staff whether his loss. Yeah, the problem with Martinez, and you know, I think there's it gets lost a little bit that Martinez some people see Martinez as fragile because of last year, and I think because of his size, and, he's, and you know he's, he's smaller than the guys who usually throw as hard as he does. But he was was he threw 180 innings for three straight years in that rotation, and uh, he came in and was a, was a pretty solid reliever for them last year. I think he was closing games by the end of the year, and I think that's eased a little bit of the of the the frustration with Martinez is they have so many options in the rotation. Now the thing about they have, they have so much rotation depth. I mean, they, I think they go like 10 or 11 deep if they have to. That counts like an Alex Reyes, who has looked fantastic uh, this spring. Reyes, I think, is that no one really thought Reyes would even be contending for a rotation spot. And he's been so fantastic and confident this spring. They're actually even considering it now. They've got a lot of options. But the thing with Martinez, 
theoretically speaking, he sounds wonderful to as like a bullpen piece. If like take your take it, let him take his time, let him get let, kind of settled. Then you add him to a bullpen. If you've got him and Hicks and a healthy Andrew Miller, which we haven't seen yet, by the way, this this uh, this spring, that is a potentially terrifying kind of end of the bullpen. That's a lot to pay for a bullpen guy, and you'd rather have Martinez throwing more innings. But the Cardinals kind of showed the second half of last year when they're when the rotation when they made that run in August when they were the best team in baseball, their rotation was Austin Gomber and John Gant and Daniel Ponce de Leon. Like they have a lot of these guys to kind of back up a little bit. So the to me the fear though is you have a lot of rotation depth until you don't. And the Cardinals had uh, basically their five going in were uh, were Michaelis, Flaherty, Waka, Martinez, and Adam Wainwright. I think that's the generally the five they're they're going with right now. Now Martinez is out. Wainwright, who knows what you're going to? He looked good earlier, but again, it's Adam Wainwright. He looked. They, he looked. He, he admitted himself in July he was playing on retiring. So because uh, because of all of his arm woes. So we'll see what happens with that. And then you start getting into guys like. Like Daniel Hudson, who is good but unproven. Like you have a lot of guys that right now I'm not sweating it too much because we saw some of those guys step up. But generally speaking, Carlos Martinez, I still think even with Michaelis and Flaherty, when healthy has the best stuff and it could be the ace on this team. But the Cardinals have kind of been waiting for Martinez to be the ace for a few years now and it hasn't happened. There's also been frustration with Mosellock and Martinez and how kind of he did his rehab. Now, Carlos Martinez, because he is actually charismatic and has a personality, sometimes rubs Cardinals fans the wrong way. So, <laughs> so sometimes that's a little frustrating when that happens. Uh, so I, I always find myself as a huge defender of Martinez, but I think there have been issues kind of with the, the team is certainly frustrated frustrated with the uh, his offseason uh, program but uh, I I think if right now I think if he starts the season on the DL and then either eases back into the rotation if it doesn't work then you can put him in the bullpen or you put him in the bullpen either way it, the Cardinals are at least in position to be able to weather that in a way that frankly they wouldn't have been if Flaherty hadn't stepped up last year or Michaelis had not turned out to be what he was they've got options that maybe would not, they were counting more on Martinez maybe going into last year than more than they are going into this year which of the following two sound more like the star? And when I say star, I mean the female lead of an early 2000s romantic comedy. Genesis Cabrera or Dakota Hudson? <laughs> Angels? <laughs> yeah, that's my John Forsyth voice. I hope you enjoyed that. The uh, Yeah, I think Genesis Cabrera in particular. Genesis Cabrera does seem definitely like a like the sixth, fifth or sixth lead in a Fast and the Furious movie. <laughs> <laughs> hey, is is Rick Ankeel going to end up on the Cardinals? <laughs> I have an official policy of not being ready to talk about this yet, uh, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll give it a try. Uh, he is he had arm surgery uh, in October. He had, actually didn't have Tommy John. He had the what do you, what they what they call in St. Louis the Seth Manus surgery, which is the, the like the less invasive. Let's give it a shot and see what happens. He had that in October. They're listen. The Cardinals are. They 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 they've on record saying we will give him a minor league contract if this works, and he's such a big part of the Cardinals' history, and his story is obviously such a big part of uh, uh you know he's he was a broadcaster for the Cardinals for the last three years, and the, even the the Fox Sports Midwest had said go ahead and do this. There's a spot waiting for you when you come back. <laughs> like like this is everyone you know his story is so kind of riveting, and it's such like and kind of what he went through is such a big part of Cardinals lore that frankly. 
are they indulging him a little bit? Yeah, of course they're indulging. He's 39 years old. It just is coming off arm surgery in October and has not thrown a competitive pitch in 15 years. And that pitch he threw then was a comeback from what had happened before. <laughs> like there's like this, <laughs> the idea that he's doing this, it just feels like a fun ending. Like basically everyone just wants the ending to that story of him to come in and throw a, a pitch in a meaningless game in September. Like that's why everyone wants to see and we'll all get really excited about it. I still don't think it's going to happen and i'm not ready to even i've 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 broken my rule but even talking about it now but uh (laughs) but nevertheless i do i uh is my favorite bit player in in uh in cardinals history and uh his story is so kind of riveting that if 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 it happens it will be amazing but we are a very very long way from even i mean it would be hard enough to even consider it if he had not had arm surgery in october so uh i, I think everyone's being everyone's they everyone wants to encourage him and i think people and I, and we all hope it happens but even if it doesn't uh it, it, he's such a big part of what the cardinals are doing uh, cardinals kind of history that he'll he'll always have a place i have a buddy named linda holmes who's one of the co-hosts mm-hmm, of npr's of pop culture happy hour and she's got a she's got a novel coming out later this year called Evie Drake starts over that's that's in part about a baseball pitcher who goes through a very similar experience to Rick Ankiel's. And I think she can't quite decide whether she is excited that Rick Ankiel might be back in the news <laughs> or mad that his story is diverging from her novel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, if Ankiel does come back, I hope that that meaningless pitch is a strike because uh, otherwise yeah. I don't know that I would want to see that ending. As someone who has read Ankiel's book, yeah. The Phenom, he has, he's been through enough. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. He has suffered. That is an ex. by the way, I, I think that's one of the best sports autobiographies of all time, which is, again, bar. Yeah, it's, it's a <laughs> motley crew, but uh, certainly... Uh, uh, I, I, it's, it is unusually good. Tim, Even better than Brown. Maury Wills, Born to Steal. <laughs> it's, it's yes, better better than Lenny Dykstra's balls, which is a, <laughs> which, better ball. For the record, for the record, that is a book. Just to be very clear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, I am tapped out, Jesse. If you're tapped out too, let's make Will predict baseball. Give us the 2019 Cardinals win total. Okay, I like to go on record. I say this every time I've been on your show. I do not understand why people. People are asked this question. They're like, oh, boy, this is so difficult. Why did you put me on the spot like this? Like, I don't know. You're on a preview podcast talking about a baseball team. Just And like, there are literally no ramifications to you if you're wrong. So just go ahead and say it. So I've actually, I unfortunately have officially already written my NL Social Predictions for MLB.com. I'm doing a weekly division by division series. The NL Social is already out. So I am on record in the books saying 96. I actually feel like they're going, they are the best team in the NL Central right now. And and uh, I think that, that getting Goldschmidt in there and the rotation depth they have, and particularly if they can, the bullpen was really the problem for most of last season. It feels like they have addressed that or will be able to address it with uh, some of the extra rotation pieces. I am very optimistic what the Cardinals are doing this year. So I have 96 wins. Wow. All right. hmm. Yeah. Bold prediction. Okay. You can follow Will on Twitter, which he grudgingly uses at William F. Leach. I am not going to repeat everywhere he appears, but you can keep up with it all, including his recent Q&A about golf with Eddie Van Halen (laughs) 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 by by subscribing to his newsletter at tinyletter.com slash William F. Leach. And you can even mail him letters and he will write you back for free. I don't know how you do it. I have ceased to try to understand it, but I admire 
that you do. I'd like to note that the Eddie Van Halen interview ended with him saying, I gotta go, there are coyotes. I don't know what that meant, (laughs) (laughs) but that is what he said. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) You interviewed him right in the middle of his vision quest. (laughs) (laughs) It was quite something. Let's end this segment the same way. Are there any coyotes in the MLB Network office right now? Or Harold Reynolds, at least? Have you taken any peyote? (laughs) I have no idea why Dave Valley just has a litter here in the corner of his office, but uh, nevertheless, there they are. They're cute for now. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Will. Thank you. All right. So we will take one more quick break and we'll be back with Julie Parker, who covers the Giants for SF Bay News. And just so you know, this segment was recorded before the Harper News broke. So there is some Harper talk, but it's all hypothetical and I think still interesting and illuminating about why the Giants were interested in Harper in the first place. So sorry, Giants fans, you have to relive what might have been. We'll be back in a sec. Crows outside complaining about the finer points of local politics. Strange wind all full of new smells Rust and fur and reception sticks And what will I do with you? Pink and blue True gold Nine days old Alright, so we are back and we are joined now by Julie Parker who covers the San Francisco Giants for SF Bay News. Welcome, Julie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? We're doing all right. I am just madly refreshing MLB trade rumors to make sure Bryce Harper hasn't signed since we started recording this podcast. Looks like he hasn't. We're in the clear. Okay. So I don't expect you to tell us whether the Giants will sign Bryce Harper. I don't know whether anyone knows. I don't know whether Bryce Harper knows. Only Steve Harwell knows. But why do you think the Giants are especially interested in Harper? Obviously, everyone should be interested in Harper, and we've spent much of the winter wondering why teams aren't interested in Harper. But what do you think it is about the Giants and Harper and this fit? Because given where they are in the competitive cycle right now, given the ballpark fit, etc., you could make a case that there are more logical fits out there. Yeah, you know, I think at the beginning of the offseason, if you'd asked me if the Giants were going for Harper, I would have laughed. <laughs> but here we are. Uh, I mean, I think part of it is his age. You know, he is only 26. And maybe the hope is that he could be the part of something down the road when they get it together. You know, also hopefully he could bring some power to the Giants. I think they were, what, 29th in home runs last season. And mm-hmm. McCutcheon was, by even by the end of the season, I think had the second most home runs on the team. So <laughs> that would definitely help pick things up. Yeah, Giants and home run hitters have not gone together lately. <laughs> no, but, you know, Smash Mouth is hoping that we can rename McCovey Cove, so <laughs> it could happen. <laughs> You know, of course, there's rumors that Farhan Zaidi is less interested in this than Charles Johnson and the ownership group, who are also very much interested in John Carlos Stanton uh, when that was happening. So, you know, I don't know if there's a there's a difference of opinion there, but certainly the ownership group has a lot of money that they can spend if they want to. So I think we'll see we'll see what happens. I mean, I don't think any team is going to be worse for signing Harper. It seems like, in part. The interest is non-baseball, non-on-the-field interest that the the Giants are staring at uh, this giant real estate development they're building in one of their parking lots, and they're looking at the best basketball team of all time maybe moving into town, and they're just thinking nobody's going to be excited about Buster Posey in three years. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I think in three years, people are going to be excited about Joey Bart. Their draft, they got a second pick overall, who actually may even make it up to the big leagues this season. But certainly, yeah, I mean, I think Harper will put butts in seats. They had some sort of record going with sellouts up until, I think it was 2017, when people started to lose interest. Certainly, Harper could bring some more more of those techie bros in to uh, (laughs) buy some seats. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, that's definitely probably a factor to get people excited about the Giants again. But people are probably even more excited about winning. So, you know, whether he's going to carry an entire team is another story. But, you know, I think also there's the chance that there's a lot of bounce back that could theoretically happen this season with the core that's still together. So I think this is, could be a combination of a last gasp attempt and maybe also looking towards the future. So who knows? I mean, I think the other aspect, of course, is that uh, I'm certain that no one in the Giants front office wants to see Harper in L.A. So <laughs> that may have spurred some more interest as of the last week or so. So there's a few different reasons why they might consider it worthwhile to at least continue to be in the running. Mm-hmm. Have you been at all surprised by the relative lack of activity up to this point? Is that what you sort of expected, given that there is a new person in charge? Or did you expect Zaidi to come in and start trading people? Or is that just an untenable thing for a new president of baseball operations to do? Yeah, I, I'm i not sure what I expected. I think a lot of people didn't really know what to expect. I think, obviously, his history of being really focused on stats and depth. I'm not surprised to see that You know, he's doing a lot of little things, a lot of smaller moves that maybe aren't as sexy or getting as much ink. So, you know, I think that's kind of been his style is to find find the hidden gems, which is something the Giants have done over the years, too. I think people kind of had had in mind that trading Bumgarner as the first big move he made may have not gone over (laughs) so well here. Uh, (laughs) But I think he also said, you know, that his decisions would be very much baseball related and not looking at, you know, he said over and over, you know, we're not looking at the ESPN ticker and they're making what they consider smart baseball decisions. And so whether that's looking at Mike, someone like Mike Gerber or um, Rene Rivera, who, you know, they need a backup catcher now. So, and he's known for his framing, you know, I think, I think getting to know Zaidi, it seems to make sense that he would be making kind of these smaller moves with the hope of creating depth and looking towards the future. So we'll see, we'll see where this goes. Um, you know, Bumgarner still could easily be traded by, you know, the deadline this year. It's tough to say, I think, until we see some more moves and see how the, t- how the season goes. Yes. How dare you suggest that Jan Hervis Salarte is not sexy? I think he's sexy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What are you implying about Drew Ferguson? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Here's... I don't know. Maybe could be down the line. I don't know. <laughs> ben, I mean, you mentioned Zaidi not making that many moves. He's made a huge volume of moves. True. Like Very the, minor the Giants currently have, you know, the the Giants are currently looking at three-digit uniform numbers in <laughs> spring training right now. Which of the Drew Fergusons and, you know, various Scrabinis and quadruple-A players that Zaidi brought in do you think have a chance to be the next, you know, Justin Turner or whatever? I mean, that's so tough to say just because there have been so many little little moves, like you said, to try to keep up with all of them. I mean, in terms of, I think Drew Pomeranz could be interesting. Obviously, that's on the pitching side, but you know, he had a pretty rough 2018, but I think he had some injuries. The thing that was interesting is he came in spring training saying that he had eaten really clean last 
season and had dropped 15 pounds and he felt that that might have had some effect on his play last year and now he comes in a spring training 15 pounds heavier which is not usually what players say when they're referring to the best shape of their lives <laughs> coming into spring training but um i mean that could be an, a potential bounce back season i guess yeah we'll see i mean you know with all these guys that they've gotten the smaller ones we'll see if they have a spot on the roster it's kind of like they you know, some of them are just barely above zero or even slightly below. But who knows? Maybe there's something in the stats that maybe saw. Maybe he's got some new hires on staff that um, may make some suggestions. They're joining the 21st century in terms of front office style. <laughs> so we'll see. Maybe some of these guys end up panning out. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. You mentioned the possibility of bounce backs, and we could probably spend the rest of this podcast talking about potential bounce backs because everyone kind of had a down year or a down two years possibly. So who do you think is the most likely candidate, whether we're talking about bounce backs from injury or underperformance or both? I mean, you could just go down the list really and reel off a whole lot of names who could stand to be better and who have been better in the past. Oh, I think absolutely Buster Posey. That's a no-brainer. I think that a lot of people were kind of viewing the last couple of years as the end of time, end of days for him. But I think he had something going on that was chronic with his hip. It was not an injury that happened acutely. And I think you can see that in over 2017 and 2018, it just kind of got progressively worse. And he said he's feeling a lot better. There are other players that have had similar surgeries. I think it was worse even than they thought when they got the surgeons got in there. But I mean, you know, last season, he, he was still hitting well, just using his hands. So I think I would say that's the most likely bounce back. I think they're also going to lower his playing time, at least in the squat this season. So I would see, say that he's probably the most likely, but there are a few guys, you know, Brandon Belt, I think had been kind of nursing an issue with his knee that finally came to fruition playing in Mariners in their last interleague set there, uh, I think at the end of July. So and, and there are a few guys that are now saying, I think Crawford is, Brandon Crawford is another one that was saying, oh yeah, I had this other injury that I was just kind of playing through. And in retrospect, I wish I had just taken 10 days off, but it was at the all-star break and we were still at 500 and I didn't want to walk away and that kind of thing. So I think both of the Brandons could theoretically have a bounce back season. I know Joe Panic spent the off season kind of terrified that he was going to be the first big getting the axe. And so he spent the off season, I think, working with his brother, who's a college I think, baseball coach out in New York, working on his swing and feeling like he wasn't getting his foot down at the correct timing for his swing. So theoretically, and he's younger, you know, he's like 29, I think, or 28. So there, there are a bunch, bunch of possibilities. Like you said, everybody kind of had a down year. So, you know, we could see a resurgence of 2014 or even 2016 when they sort of slid in and then the bullpen sort of slipped out. <laughs> as you were, know, so. last year the Giants went out and made trades in the hopes of getting one last year of contention out of their core. And one of those trades was for Evan Longoria. And I think when they traded for Evan Longoria, they thought they were trading for a slightly faded superstar. And the way that Longoria played last year was essentially a guy who was washed. And I wonder if you think that this is the beginning of the end for Longoria or whether he still has a bounce back left in him. You know, it's, he's kind of a big question mark. You know, his numbers are kind of somewhat curious. If you look back over the last few years, it seems like he was trending downward even from 2013 on. And then he had this 
36 homer season in 2016. And, and then if you, really, if you count that year out, it's the same trend, you know, it was, his power was decreasing and he, you know, he feels that his season got cut off in the middle when he broke his hand and that he felt, I think by September that he was really, he was finding his, his groove again. You know, it's tough to say. I think that probably the trade for him may have contributed to the end of Bobby Evans' tenure, <laughs> kind of an albatross contract there. But I, don't, I think that that's going to be the state of things at third base for a while, whether the Giants are thrilled about it or not. Pablo Sandoval still around, <laughs> and he, you know he can certainly back things up there and pitch apparently as well. So, yeah, it's it's hard. You know, there's a lot of these guys where it's just like you, it's hard to tell what direction they're going. I guess theoretically, Longoria could bounce back to some of his power and still he had a ton of errors also last season. So I think also it's worth considering that you know when he was in Tampa Bay he had a lot of time at DH too. So he wasn't on his legs as much, which is something that I'd kind of looked into last season. It's just knowing that, like, I don't know if there's some fatigue involved there, um, not getting quite as much rest and being, you know, out there on the field more. There's just a ton of question marks. There's a ton of guys that could possibly bounce back or could possibly continue trending downward. So, sorry, I don't have a great answer there. <laughs> Today's reminder of our mortality is that Evan Longoria has gone from ultimate bargain to potential albatross in not all that long a time. He's 33. Life comes at you fast. <laughs> yes, it definitely does. But he's getting lots of lines with his talk about the uh, issue with Reagent off season. Yes, that's so right. He's least somewhat relevant there. <laughs> so as for Bumgarner and his bounce back potential, I mean, he is not directly coming off an injury. He has had injuries, but he has, when he has pitched most recently, it has not been at his peak level. So maybe he's untradeable just because he's Madison Bumgarner and he's the pitching face of the team at least but is there confidence that he is still the same elite type of guy or is he just kind of a maybe mid-rotation workhorse type i mean i think it depends on who you ask if you ask anyone in san francisco they will tell you he is still the bum garner of old his velocity has definitely dropped but i think on the you know from the giants perspective he hasn't had a full season since 2016 you know the freakish accident in colorado the dirt bike which was kind of ironic because before that they were running truck commercials with him riding dirt bikes. <laughs> <laughs> and immediately after that injury, they stopped running this or I think it was Chevrolet. But yeah, I mean, it's just freak accidents. And at the same time, you have those freak accidents where you end up with Derek Holland in the rotation and he has an incredible bounce back. But, you know, I think that they definitely are going to look at what he does this season. And I would be surprised if they traded him if they were by some miracle in contention. But if they're at, 500 or below, I could definitely see them trying to get what he's worth, especially if he's bounced back to some degree. Uh, I think it's possible. I, I think that he felt that he was he hasn't had enough time to hit his groove, but even by the end of September, I think things weren't looking pretty. So yeah, it's, they just have a lot of these guys where it's like, you know, in theory, but you know, every team says if everyone stays healthy, we could totally, you know, bounce back and be in it. So there's there's a lot on a lot of people on both sides of it that are arguing that they should trade him while he still has some value or hold on to him and see what he can do. So there's just there's a lot of question marks. I, I think we'll have to see. You know, spring training doesn't say a whole lot, although I think he did get rocked in his first start. Some people argue that he's gotten rocked in spring training before and then had great seasons. So there's just he's just another guy where they're just going to have to see how it plays out. 
So when he was brought in, Farhan Zaidi said that one of his goals was to bring two starting outfielders into the Giants. He signed over 75 miscellaneous guys, and to me, all of whom have their interesting qualities. I mean, Drew Ferguson is an on-base machine who's five foot eight. I'm a big fan of that. There's a lot of interesting guys here, but I think one of the most interesting Giants outfield candidates is one who Zaidi didn't bring in, uh, Mac Williamson. He's like a guy who looks like if you if you just looked in the dictionary for baseball player. He's just a monster tower of a man and, and surprisingly athletic. And when he hits the ball, it jumps off his bat. And a year ago, he was ungodly amazing after making some switch changes over the course of spring training and about a month or so in AAA and the majors. Then he had a concussion and was a- out for a long time and struggled through the rest of the year. Do the Giants still think they have something in this, you know, 29-year-old or 28-year-old prospect? Absolutely. He really had his season just wrecked. He was going for a fly ball and left and just smashed it. He, tri- he tripped over the bullpen mound, which is the downside of having bullpen mounds out there uh, just past the foul line. So, um, And I think he tried to play through it for a little while, which is sort of a very San Francisco Giants thing to do. Panic and Belt have both done the same thing. And he was on a total tear. He had just been knocking him out of the park, having crazy power. And I think that they're really hopeful. You know, Zaidi you know, said that he's 100% healthy and feeling much better. And, I mean, they don't have a whole lot of options in the outfield at this point <laughs> anyway. So he'll definitely get a shot. I would be surprised if he didn't make the team. I think, I mean, maybe they get someone whose name rhymes with my smarper. Um, things could change. But um, yes! I think there's a lot of hope. Grace Larper <laughs> signs with the Giants. <laughs> I don't know. Ask Mashmouth. They know better than I do. But, but. <laughs> but No, I think Max Williamson is definitely, they hope there's a lot of upside and that he can bounce back. I think he had some comparisons to Justin Turner there with a swing, and he'd been sort of hit or miss. He's kind of been in the same camp as uh, another guy, Jarrett Parker, who'd been up and down from AAA, and um, they had they had both had power, and the Giants sort of hoped they would both break out, and that you know were on and off for a couple years, and then it just seemed like you know coming out of spring training, coming up in late spring last year, he just was a different guy with his swing, um, and then it just all fell apart with that concussion. So I definitely think they want to give him another shot and see if he can be that guy on a regular basis. One of the selling points that the Giants have had, in addition to winning all these World Series and having a beautiful ballpark and all the rest, is that there seems to be a perceived clubhouse harmony. And a lot of that probably stems from Bruce Bochy, who is, of course, as respected as any manager in the game. Do you know why he or the Giants decided to announce that this would be his final season in advance? Did they feel like that would be less of a distraction? Is there a chance for it to be more of a distraction? Does it matter at all? I don't know. I think that it may have been Bochy's call to announce it, to be honest. I mean, it's hard. We'll never know those kind of things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, maybe he wants to have a little tour like some of these players' (laughs) final final go around but i'm looking forward to the inspirational speeches that he makes when he gets you know his awards at the various visiting ballparks they they like they hand him a you know a gold-plated catcher's mitt or whatever and he just goes uh thank you very much (laughs) (laughs) grumble grumble bochi noises yeah (laughs) well i think he certainly will get that kind of reception um in san diego if nowhere else 
certainly not in Philadelphia. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he's he's surprisingly very um, a very amiable guy. That was what I learned last off season. Uh, he's a lot. He, I was intimidated when I first started just like covering the Giants, and I was like, "Oh, you're like actually really nice." His first thing that he said to me was, "Can I call you Pink?" Because my hair was pink at the time. <laughs> pink again. So he's kind of a goofball. But I I think that so many of these guys just have so much respect for him. Pablo Sandoval, when he had his whole drama after leaving for Boston for that uh, not so good try out there. He had talked a lot of smack about the Giants clubhouse, but said, but Bochi, he's like a dad to me. And I think he's like that for a lot of players. And obviously he's brought help to bring three World Series to San Francisco. So I think I think part of it was just giving Giants fans, you know, last year and, and knowing it was the last year, I think people probably would have guessed that um, he's had heart problems over the last couple of years and claims he's that's not the issue and he's been fine but it's just it feels like it's sort of a changing of the guard you know you have Zaidi coming in and Bochu's getting on in years and it just sort of makes sense for this to happen at this point so we'll see I mean there's a lot of options out there that they could replace him with but I think probably it also just gives fans a chance to sort of feel like they're saying goodbye This could be a question for either or both of you, but we were just talking to Will about the idea of a five-year grace period following a World Series title, and I wonder whether you think that Giants fans are feeling that they are still in the grace period, or whether two or two and a half seasons of losing is enough to take the bloom off the rose. I think that they just want to keep winning, but I suppose they just want to keep winning. You know, they've been pretty two pretty bad seasons, so it it was a pretty quick fall from grace as exhibited also by the fallen uh, butts and seats. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that the shine is totally off. Certainly it's not off for Larry Bear, who in hire, looking before he hired Zaidi, he was like, we want a next-gen manager, but we don't really want to change the philosophy. I mean, you know, we, we have three World Series here in the last you know decade or so. So and from the fans' perspective, I think that the shine isn't gone, but that doesn't mean they feel okay with, having uh, nearly 100 lost seasons like like in 2017 and not so good last year either. So I don't know. I think most fan bases are never going to get an Afghani Yankees fan and they'll get an easy answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as someone who has a few, there used to be this pin the Giants gave out called the quad candlestick, <laughs> which you could get by turning in your, in, in your ticket stub to an extra inning night game that had been played at Candlestick Park. And <laughs> as... <laughs> As somebody, uh, as somebody who has a few of those in their in, in their closet, you know, I know about the really passionate core of Giants fans who I, I think take pride in the success of the team, but don't have the expectation of success that you know three World Series might suggest. But it does feel like the cultural changes in San Francisco. Let's say we've already had one allusion to Tech Bros. <laughs> It may have changed the city's relationship to the team a little. I mean, I don't think that all of a sudden where the San Francisco is Boston or Philadelphia or, you know, the, I don't think Giants fans are complaining the way Mets fans do, for example. <laughs> but it does feel it does feel a little bit different now, even than 10 years ago, frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely fair. I mean, even if you just go to the ballpark, you see that. But you're always going to have the bleacher creatures out there that are going to be there, rain or shine, win or lose. But I think that's a fair assessment. I think that certainly, particularly at the beginning of this sort of dynasty, as they call it, the ballpark was definitely filling out with a lot of people from Google and Facebook and not necessarily from this area that 
sort of jumped on the bandwagon, which there's nothing wrong with a bandwagon fan as long as you don't pretend like you've been a fan for 15 <laughs> years. Um, so, and I think that that may also explain some of the drop in attendance. It's like a lot of newer fans are going to lose interest, especially if they weren't necessarily baseball fans to begin with. So, yeah, I see that. I think that you're still going to have those core fans, especially those sitting out in the bleachers. Although, you know, the bleacher prices are probably going down again, which I bet is, is a nice surprise for them um, that sit out there. But, yeah, I would. I think that's a fair assessment that the dynamic has, or the demographic, I guess, has certainly changed to some degree, but you're never going to lose those diehards. Jesse, do you have any more hardcore Giants baseball-y questions before I ask a couple less baseball-y questions? <laughs> do I have Giants baseball <laughs> questions? Yeah, <laughs> get it out of your system. <laughs> you know, I do a comedy podcast called Jordan Jesse Go, and I often get complaint emails that I will just start talking about Ken Oberkfell or something <laughs> for five minutes. I, I have a huge list of them. How much do you think Buster Posey is going to be behind the plate this year? I think I would see him probably maybe like 100, somewhere between 100, 110 games. They really have said they plan to give him a rest from time to time, I think they want to stretch out his time behind the plate as long as possible, uh, at least long enough to get Joey Bart up, up here on a regular basis. So, you know, in the wake of the hip issues, they they want that, that power at the plate. And certainly his numbers have often looked better when he's at first base. So I think he, I think it's definitely going to be, it's not going to be the 140, 150 games behind the plate that it's been in the past. I think they want it handle him with at least kid gloves to begin with. And he said, you know, it's a, it's a mind frame change for him, but he's definitely open to that um, in the hopes that it helps the team. So, I mean, he's, it's, of course he's a team player and he's happy to help however he can. And I think if that means, if that means taking a rest from behind the plate, that's what they'll do. One of the guys who we are now in spring training learning was apparently secretly injured all year last year is Jeff Samarja. Uh, He was also partly not secretly injured injured. It was sort of a mysterious injury. <laughs> he's saying that he's feeling a lot better. Does that mean that he is ready to actually contribute something to the to the Giants as he did, you know, two years ago? I mean, I think it's possible his velocity is back. One thing I heard recently that came out is that he may have actually had a neck injury from that uh, faded fight with uh, Bryce Harper um, after <laughs> headbutting Mike Morse, who ended up ending his career as a result of that concussion. So there's been some speculation that the neck injury ended up causing the shoulder injury, um, but it was this sort of nebulous thing where it's just like he was never right in 2018. He would have horrible outings in, in AAA, quote-unquote rehab outings, and then make brief stints back in San Francisco, and it just was pretty ugly. So, you know, he, he said he changed his off-season routine. Um, typically in the past, he just took the off-season off, and that was not the case this year. He stayed in San Francisco he said he was working out, I think, something like five or six days a week um, at the ballpark and at another training facility in San Mateo. He felt back and ready for action. You know, he's had enough time off, hopefully, that we, there's a good chance we could see the Samarja of old. We see the velocity back so far in spring training. So I think the Giants are definitely hopeful that he could he could come back from that and become the Samarja of old. I think he's also said that he's sort of changed his mindset along with the league in terms of not expecting or making the goal of hitting the 200 inning mark anymore, which was sort of one of his trademarks in the past was that he was just this workhorse. And that may reflect some changes in his pitching style as mixing his pitches, bringing in some pitches earlier in games 
and just with the understanding that he might not be pitching a complete game or an eight inning game anymore. And so I think if, you know, if that mindset change and the rest and whatever rehabilitation he's been able to do uh, really pans out, there's a good chance we could see this margin of old. Now, we've talked about the fact that Farhan Zaidi has not made many major impact moves to this point. And of course, as I as I say that out loud, I know that by the time this uh, show is uh, by the time this show it hits the feed, uh, the Giants will have signed Bryce Harper. But they did make one major impact move over the offseason that was signing switch pitcher Pat Vendetti. Is Pat Vendetti, the baseball player who pitches with both hands, going to be on the Giants major league roster for the entire 2019? Um, we'll see. I know that he has some history with him. Uh, I think he was with the Dodgers briefly. You know, he, he is able to pitch with both hands. I don't know that it has made the biggest difference. I think the splits are pretty wide still, but I mean, maybe they'll bring him up just to see what he can do. I think the bullpen is pretty good as it stands, unless, of course, Will Smith makes an exit um, in the next month or few months. But there's a chance. I think it'll. we'll, we'll see what happens. They may bring him up. Hey, he'll, he'll bring some butts and seats too, maybe. So, I mean, he, he could be. He hasn't had a whole lot of time in the big leagues. And uh, if anything, it'll be an oddity. So there's that. He's almost like a two-way player, only he doesn't play in the outfield <laughs> like uh, an Angels pitcher. So. <laughs> Is Zaidi secretly planning to send Will Smith and Tony Watson and Sam Dyson, the reasonably well-paid and effective relievers, out of town in the hopes of maybe picking up a few prospects and clearing some room for, I guess, tie block? <laughs> uh, not all of them I wouldn't think that all of them there wouldn't be a mass exodus I think a lot of this is going to depend on what what this team looks like in the first three months I think it's a hot mess and nobody is bouncing back and it's just pretty ugly I think we could see one or two of those guys go you know the kind of unsung heroes and Reyes Maranta who could easily be the closer of the future. He's a younger guy, and um, he had a great 2018, although when the team, when a team is terrible, guys like that sort of fall under the radar, at least on the national level. So there are some guys in the wings. I think they could definitely withstand losing any of those three guys. Certainly they would get a good return for Will Smith, especially. Coming back from Tommy John, he's just been excellent, perhaps even better than before. I mean, he certainly took the closing job for the first time in his career with pretty, it was a pretty smooth transition for him, you know, after Hunter Strickland got in a fight with the door sometime <laughs> around July. So, yeah, I, I think there's a chance. I think, I think a lot of what these moves are going to be based on is, is how this team looks by maybe June or July. It's really going to depend on that, but they could get some pretty good returns for any of those guys. So I think at least one or two would, would be on, on the trading block if things are pretty ugly. We can talk about this offline, but if you ever just need somebody to talk to about Ken Oberkfell or Greg <laughs> Litton or Gil Heredia, I just want you to know I'm here for you. That's good to know. Sometimes, you know, we need support groups for things like that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I have to cut you off, Jesse, or this segment will never end. <laughs> so here comes Steve Hosey talk. <laughs> so... <laughs> Julie, before we put you on the spot with the prediction, I wanted to ask you a, a couple of questions about your job, 
because your Twitter bio says that you stand out like a tattooed, goofy-haired sore thumb in the Oracle Park press box. And as you just said, you have been called pink by Bruce Pochi. I'm wondering whether standing out is an obstacle in some ways, whether it's an advantage in some ways that you don't necessarily look like you love Bruce Springsteen as much as every other writer in the press box. <laughs> has that helped you in any way, or has that been the kind of thing where it is another barrier that has to be overcome when you talk to players in the clubhouse, which is already an awkward and uncomfortable situation? I would say a little bit of both. I mean, yeah, I definitely stand out. I'm also, I think, pretty much the only beat writer that consistently covers all the home games that's a woman. So there's sort of this combo of like me being a woman and also, yeah, being definitely not looking like a bunch of the old fuddy-duddy white guys <laughs> in the press box. <laughs> Uh, nothing bad about that. Most of them were very uh, nice and open arms by June, maybe not by <laughs> April and May. I, I think it's helped some. I was definitely nervous going in just because being a new beat writer and having never done it before, that was kind of nerve wracking enough. Definitely the terror of my goal was just to not ask a stupid question all season. And I think I pretty much did okay on that front. But definitely, I think being a woman and ha- looking like a goofball like I do, there is that risk of standing out. And it, when it, that's, a, that's a positive risk if you do a good job. It's a negative risk if you make a mistake because people are definitely going to remember the girl that has bright pink hair and tattoos. And, but it's been fun. I mean, I think Bochi has been the most amused by me. He's like, you're so different than everyone else. But, you know, at the end of last season, of course, he shakes all, all the guys' hands and he's like, give me a hug. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> I, got a, I got a Bochi hug. It's like a Buster hug, only older. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's been good i mean <laughs> on twitter actually the one time like early in the season last season so brandon crawford is the dj for the clubhouse for batting practice and he sometimes i agree or disagree with his music choices and early on i was just like blink 182 is happening right now and i hate blink 182 um <laughs> and i posted on twitter being like you know, I don't usually take issue with your music choices, Brandon Crawford, but this is just terrible. And thinking like, so this is like early in the season. I had like, I don't know, a hundred followers. I was like, no one is paying attention to me. Like no one knows who I am. And like after the game or after, I think it was the next game, we were asking Crawford questions about something. And after like all the serious questions had been asked, he turned to me and he was like, but the most important question is, how is the music playlist today? Was that acceptable? And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't really hide, like, you know, the bright pink hair, it's like, yeah, you know who I am. Super <laughs> awkward. Yeah, so one, that, but <laughs> one odd part about being a Giants fan is that you may or may not have the music taste to appreciate the San Francisco Giants fan bands, which are basically Metallica, which is best case scenario if you like Metallica type music. Journey, which I guess is good if you like Journey type music. <laughs> Smash Mouth and Huey Lewis and the News. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, none of them are particularly my style, but it is what it is. You know, they have the, as I'm sure you know, Jesse, they have the whole thing where it's like, uh, depending on whether or not they're losing or winning. I think after the seventh or eighth inning, they play one of two Journey songs. It's Don't Stop Believing if they're losing, obviously. And I think it's In the City if they're winning. But I think the denizens of the press box threatened to go on strike at, during the 2017 season before I was on, on the beat if they had to hear another 
uh, rendition of Don't Stop Believin'. And they eventually changed it. I'm not even kidding. I'm serious. I'm not even kidding. And so this year they kind of went on and off with it. Like, like they were doing like a tip to be cool and or hip to be square and like stuff like that. But no, I'm not really a fan of any of those bands. Um, it is what it is. Sometimes they make some of them make appearances in the clubhouse. I'm like, all right, cool. Whatever. <laughs> Shout out, by the way, to my friend, uh, to my friend Ashcon, who had a viral hit in the 2012, I want to say, World Series run with a Giants themed version of don't stop believing <laughs> for my personal music taste i'm always grateful to see e40 in the orange and black well yes there is that there is that <laughs> i will brook no negative words about smash mouth on this podcast you can come on and criticize springsteen all you like unaffectedly wild but no smash mouth so my other question along those lines was we get the question a lot how do you get into this business how do you become a beat writer and you have taken a non-traditional path you were just telling me you were a vet tech before you started doing this beat writing thing part-time while you're in school so from now on i'm just going to answer all of those questions with well first you become a licensed veterinary technician <laughs> then you write about music for a while and then while you're still in school you cover the giants and uh, you're also studying journalism which is another question we get should i bother studying journalism anymore i didn't as people can probably tell have you <laughs> found that to be helpful and how did you end up doing what you're doing yeah so started as a vet tech years ago in my early 20s did that for five years hurt my back had to find a plan b so i decided to go back to school for journalism at ss state and i just got really lucky honestly one of my professors who knew I liked baseball also has a small news outlet, SSA News, which is where I work now. And his beat writer, who was also an SS State student, basically he just mines SS State for <laughs> beat writers, had gotten a job. Shana Rubin got a job at The Athletic. And so he also thought it was really important to have more women in the press box and asked me if I wanted a job. And I looked at him and I was like, you know, I've never written about sports in my life, right? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, but I trust you. I have faith in you. You're a good writer. Like, I've seen your work and I think you'll be fine. And I mean, I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm not going to turn that job down. Um, <laughs> I just took it and I was like, I guess I'll just figure this out as I go along. So that is sort of the clear path. I'm still finishing up my degree. I've got about a semester and a half left, unfortunately. So covering all the home games and doing that and also being a campus news editor for the school newspaper is kind of a lot. Dude, shout out <laughs> to the San Francisco I, State University Golden Gator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fun. Um, and yeah, my other job is to continuously harass the SSA administration for misusing funds and treating faculty and students like uh, dollar signs. So that's my other job. But <laughs> yeah, ben, I, no, I bet you... it's a lot of fun. Ben, I bet you didn't know you were putting together a dream team of staffers of the San Francisco State University Golden Gator. <laughs> no, I had no yeah. idea. Yeah, <laughs> I did a semester there while I was in high school, yeah. Oh, nice. That's awesome. Yeah. It's uh, quite a, it depends on which semester you're there, how the uh, paper looks like, but I think we're shaping <laughs> up pretty good this semester. <laughs> All right, so I've put this off long enough. Give us your predicted win total for the Giants in 2019. And I guess we have to do a with and without Harper version, which is just an indirect, <laughs> weird way of asking you how good you think Bryce Harper is. But <laughs> give us uh, the two numbers. There's so many. I know I've been spent this entire podcast waffling. <laughs> I'm aware <laughs> of that. But like, there's just so many factors. It's hard to tell. I think, you know, if things stay as they are without Harper, I'm going to say, I know that I think a lot of projections have them at like 76. I think maybe 81. I'm going to give them 500. With Harper, maybe 
84, 85. That's what I'm going to go with. I'm sure Giants fans everywhere hate me and everyone else thinks I'm over projecting this, but (laughs) there it is. I'm going with that. Can you give us a third projection if they bring back (laughs) Ernest Riles? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I just had to get one more Uh, in, Ben. Just one more. (laughs) That's okay. I don't know, maybe 78. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, you can follow Julie all season at SFA News. That is sfa.ca. And you can find her on Twitter at Inside the Parker. The E is a three. Thank you very much, Julie. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Julie. Yeah, thank you very much, Jesse. This has been a pleasure, and I'm sorry that we can't do this every day, but I'm married to Jesse with an I, and it would probably get confusing <laughs> if I had to talk about two Jessies in my life all the time, so maybe it's for the best. Yeah, if the two of you were in bed and you accidentally called her Jesse. <laughs> right, that would be embarrassing. <laughs> and before you go, is there anything you would like to plug? One of your many shows, The Many Ways to Listen to You. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think probably the the one that I would send people to is uh, Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, my NPR arts and culture interview show, in part because we do probably too much baseball related stuff, uh, which on public radio just means a couple things a year. Um, but we're we're currently planning a all baseball episode for the beginning of the season with some great stuff. And, and you can listen back, I think. Hunter Pence was a particularly fun guest, and and I think probably our best baseball guests, I would say, were R.A. Dickey, uh, Mm -hmm. who's had a really incredible life in addition to just being that fascinating thing, which is a a knuckleball pitcher. And I I know a hero of yours and and certainly a a hero of mine, Roger Angel, was on the show. Yes, very envious of that. Yeah, it it was a really special experience. Uh, for me to have him on the show. And I also wanted to take this opportunity at the end of the program while I'm being paid in plugs uh, (laughs) to say that fellow Effectively Wild listener and uh, Facebook group member J. Keith Van Stratton uh, Mm -hmm. was nice enough to reschedule his recording in our studio this morning so that I could do this. Uh, which is to say live his dream. So I I want to take the opportunity to plug his show, Go Fact Yourself, which is a really hilarious comedy quiz show that he tapes live here in Los Angeles in front of a live audience uh, in which they, they bring celebrities on, uh, chat with them a little bit, find out what they think they're an expert on, and then bring in a real expert to quiz them. Mm-hmm. And it is and sometimes a, baseball guests. I know, and sometimes baseball guests me to recommend some. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think uh, I think Jimmy Pardo, comedian Jimmy Pardo, wanted to talk about his beloved Chicago White Sox, among other things. But uh, Jay Keith's show is so funny, and he's he's such a great host. And I think it's really right up the alley of effectively wild listeners. So that's called Go Fact Yourself, and people can, you know, people who are who are trivia nerds or comedy fans can uh, can search for that. Well, thank you for all the great shows you do and host on your network, and thank you for slumming it with us today. Oh, I'm so excited to be here, and I'm so excited to have gotten the chance to talk to you directly for the first time in my life uh, instead of having an imaginary conversation with you <laughs> inside my head while I'm driving to work. Uh, <laughs> right. This this show is one of my absolute faves, and it is a great refuge for me, a guy who works in comedy and is deeply upset by the state of the world from comedies, from the professional jealousy that I get every time I listen to anything that's funny and the genuine terror that I get any time I listen to the news. 
<laughs> right. Well, fortunately, we're not funny enough to make you feel jealous. So thank you. And we will have you back on before episode 2680 or whatever it is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, that will do it for this time. Thanks to Jesse and to Will and to Julie. That was a fun one. And if you're one of Jesse's regular podcast listeners and he has convinced you to try a baseball podcast or at least this baseball podcast for the first time and you liked what you heard, well, that may have been because Jesse was on, which is not usually the case, but you can catch us three times a week and Jesse will at least be listening. Couple closing words on Harper. This is a tweet from Detroit Free Press Tigers beat writer Anthony Fennick. The news of Harper's agreement has infiltrated the visitors' clubhouse at Champion Stadium. Quote, Why would you want to play that long? One Tiger said. This game sucks. <laughs> Particularly if you play for the 2019 Tigers. And the last word goes to Smash Mouth, who tweeted, Dollar sign talks. You can support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild, as have the following five listeners, Michael Eisen, Dustin Toon, Will Crosby, Katie Razor, and Falafel. Sure, if you pay for the podcast, you can go by Falafel. You can go by Falafel in real life if you'd like. You can be like Jesse Thorne and join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Please keep your questions and comments coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. You can buy my book or at least buy it in advance. Pre-order it. There's a word for that. It's called The MVP Machine and it's coming out in a few months. Go reserve your copy now. We will be back with another episode this week, but Bryce Harper signing screwed up our recording schedule and I've got to go to Boston on Friday to host the panel at the Sloan Sports Conference. Please say hello if you see me. So the next episode won't post until Saturday, but we will talk to you then. we check that Bryce Harper hasn't signed anywhere? <laughs> you probably should check again. Uh, I know it's going to happen at the most inopportune time. Uh, yeah, not yet. All right. You have anything else on Harper? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a professional baseball writer. <laughs> <laughs> All right.